0: the question that we asked our city councilors, and that's the question that we're asking you. So why do we ask that question? The answer is simple, it's all about people. I know the realtors want you to believe it's all about the where, but it's really all about the who. Who are the people in your neighborhood? People are why we are here. People are why we do what we do. Let's not forget that. We did a seven-part series last fall on neighboring, and we revisited it several times and in several ways since. Why do we put such an emphasis on neighboring around here? I know it would be easier to just kind of build on what we already have. We could just sort of camp out here and stay to ourselves. That would be easier. That would be safer, less risk personally, and much more comfortable. But something compels us to go beyond. 1 Corinthians 9.16 says, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. That was the Apostle Paul. He was compelled to preach the gospel. The good news was just too good not to share. And we are called to reach people. God has touched our lives. And if you really get that, if you really have been touched by God, And if you really understand the significance of what it means to be touched by God, then you are compelled to find a way to share that with others. It goes against the law of dispersion not to. So in the winter, when our houses are filled with warm air, that warm air tries to get out of your house and distribute itself in the less dense area. Water displaces itself and spreads out. But it's interesting to me that Christians tend to huddle up in one place. In reality, we're commanded to be externally focused as far as the gospel goes. The Great Commission compels us We are to go into the world and make disciples. That's the what. The what is sharing our faith. The what is spreading the gospel. The how is neighboring. And there are lots of ideas for neighboring. They're listed in a a handout in your your program. I, I hope that you all will look at that flyer. I hope that you will bring it home. You'll talk it over with your spouse and your family. You'll circle the ones that are doable in your neighborhood. You'll, you'll put it in your Bible or you'll uh, put a magnet on it, hold it up to your fridge to remind you. Because we have to be intentional about reaching the people in our neighborhood. It doesn't just happen. There won't be a day, I can almost guarantee this, There won't be a day when the the Spirit moves you into neighboring. There won't be a day when lightning strikes. There won't be a day when you fall into a trance. There won't be a day when the heavens open and the words are written, begin to neighbor now. It's up to you to be intentional. It's up to you to just do it because you've already been called to do it. Now you have to choose to do it. It starts with a decision, but it must develop into a plan. It has to go beyond techniques and ideas, it must be rooted in a love for people and a desire to reach the lost. It's all about people. Who are the people in your neighborhood? And what do all those people, the people in your neighborhood, what do they all have in common? They all have needs. Identifying those needs can be helpful as we attempt to neighbor them. Abraham Maslow was a 20th century psychologist who studied positive human qualities. And in 1954, he came up with the hierarchy of human needs. Now at the very core, the very base of all human needs are the physiological needs. Things like food, water, air, sleep. Next up, Maslow's pyramid of needs is safety. We all need some measure of security regarding our physical well-being, our employment, our resources, our Family and our health. We need to feel some measure of security in those things. We need. Uh, we also need next up to to belong. We need to feel loved. We need friends. We need family. We need intimacy. It's a it's a prerequisite of a healthy existence. Another thing we need as we move up the pyramid is esteem. We need to be valued and respected. We need confidence. We need a sense of achievement in life. And the highest level of need, if you will, the top of the pyramid, according to Maslow, is what he calls self-actualization. This is the part of us that brings out our creativity, our spontaneity, our problem-solving abilities. It's, It's discovering who you are and why you exist. Now, Take all that for for what it's worth. It's not Bible, but it does point out our common human needs. When it comes to impacting the lives of our neighbors, it it at least gives us a place to start. We can look toward their point of need, and it even helps us, in a sense, in order of priority. It doesn't make any sense to give someone a plate of brownies if they're physiological needs are not met. If, if basic needs like food and water are unmet, we can't look past those needs and begin to meet other needs. You don't give a drowning man $50. If they don't have shelter, we aren't real worried about their self actualization. This hierarchy of needs reminds us of the needs that we all have. But we're often unaware of because ours are met so well. I happen to have a beautiful wife who affirms my creativity, respects my achievements. She tells me how wonderful I am and how good I am at what I do on a regular basis. But not everyone Gets that kind of encouragement. Maybe we have a neighbor who could use some positive reinforcement, and you could be the one who raves about their garden or marvels at their new car. Maybe we could find ways to affirm their worth and creatively love them like we all need to be loved. And we all need to belong, it's one of our critical needs. Now, to some people, that means helping them. And I think we're, maybe that's our first instinct. So we think about helping them. But for others, it means asking them to help you. There's nothing that breathes life into someone like being asked a question in the area of their expertise. Think about it. What's your area of of expertise? So what if, what if someone asked you a question about that? I, I tell you what. If one of my neighbors came to my house and knocked on my door and asked me a question about the Bible, I mean, my, my eyes would light up, my countenance would brighten. I couldn't open my door fast enough to, in, to invite them in. Be interested in your neighbor's area of specialty. Ask questions and watch how they warm up to you. People matter. And if we believe that, then we must acknowledge their needs and the fact that their needs matter. We matter to God, and I believe that with all of my heart, I believe that He is concerned with our needs. Matthew ten thirty says, but the very Hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, this verse is meant to be much more than a straight line for bad preacher bald jokes. It's telling us that the very detail of our life is important to God. He doesn't dismiss our needs even though He knows already that He's going to meet them. And he doesn't even dismiss our worry about our needs, even though he already knows that he's going to meet them. He's aware of us, even to the degree of knowing every intimate detail of our lives, down to the number of hairs on our head. And that's how we're to be with our neighbors. We need to care. We need to meet them at their point of need. And this is where we fail many times. We often, here's here's how we fail. A well-intentioned fail. We often lead with the gospel. We lead with the gospel because we know it's the most important thing. The problem is, they don't know that yet. It's not their point of need. At least they don't recognize it as their point of need. Leading with the gospel, I'm going to make a a statement that you never thought you would hear a pastor in church make, all right? I'm sure I have your attention right now. Leading with the gospel is the most ineffective way of presenting the gospel. This is why door-to-door ministry is so ineffective. It's just too much, too soon. It's like blasting a spotlight in, in someone's eyes when they wake up in the morning. Now, light is a good thing. I'm all in favor of light, but I don't want a spotlight blasted in my eyes when I wake up in the morning. It's just too much, too soon. There's a better way. And it's called caring about people. It's called loving your neighbor as yourself. So what does neighboring look like? Well, it's, it's different in every case. It's probably different in every district. It probably looks like the people in your neighborhood. That's why it's so important to know the people in your neighborhood. But generally speaking, this is what neighboring can look like. Let me give you five steps in the process of effective neighboring. All right? I love lists. Reduce it to a list, man. I can wrap my brain around that. Here it is. The process, uh, five steps in the process of effective neighboring. Number one, forge a connection. Forge a connection. Start simple. Don't lead with the gospel. Okay? You're going to become the weirdo on the corner. That's that guy. When he's out in the yard, I'm going in. Don't lead with the gospel. Forge a connection. Start simple. It's just a backyard conversation. Introduce yourself. Now here's the hard part. Remember their name. <laughs> now now many of us have phones now. Write it Put it in your phone. Put put a note in there in your your phone. Remember their name. So forge a connection. Number two, demonstrate you care. So somehow invest in in them. Doesn't have to be anything great. Somehow demonstrate you care. Number three, present an invitation of some sort. So remember last fall when we did the the seven-part series on neighboring, we talked about scruffy hospitality. Remember that? So... So what that says is, is, is don't wait until the house is all remodeled before you invite the neighbors over. Don't wait till it's all clean and I get to that project and this happens and, and that happens and then I'll have the neighbors over. Just, just do it. Think in terms of scruffy hospitality. Maybe it's a backyard bonfire. Present an invitation of some sort. Number four, model a consistent and distinct life. Before you preach it, church, you better live it. Before you preach it, live it. And let me, let me start, let me say this in conjunction with this. I'm a little disappointed in the modern church as far as our language goes. Okay? Now, I know the modern church, the, the people that are really born again, you know, we don't say the, the bad swear words, right? We don't say the really bad swear words. Uh-oh, that worries me. <laughs> now, in, in, in District 8, they don't at all. <laughs> right, Brent? But in the church, five. (laughs) But in the church, even though most of us don't say the bad swear words, I tell you that the new trend is to say the borderline swear words. So when we're mad, we don't say we're mad, we say something else. And that disappoints me. And we think it makes us sound cutting edge, it makes us sound worldly. It doesn't make us sound cutting edge. It makes us sound worldly. Model a consistent and distinct life. And number five, be ready to give an answer when they ask why you're different. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. Now that word answer in the original language, the Greek language that the New Testament is written in, is the word apologia. That word apologia is the word that we get apologetics from. Apologetics is is the defense of your faith. So, So be ready to give an answer. Be ready to defend your faith. Be ready to give the answer when they ask you why you're so different. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. When we went through the neighboring series last fall, we made sure that we all knew the goal was not to invite people to church. Again, you just don't hear this from the pulpit. (laughs) But the goal is not to invite people to church. The goal is to, to do exactly what Jesus said we should do. And according to him, we only have to be good at two things in this life. You remember the passage from Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. It says one of the scribes came having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well. He asked him, which is the the first commandment? Which is the most important commandment? And Jesus answered said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, You should love the Lord your God with all of your soul. You should love him with all of your mind, all of your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. Namely, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, Jesus said, greater than these. Loving God and loving our neighbor. If you do these two things well, you will have rocked the world for Jesus. Now, I know we love Jesus around here. I do. I have no doubt. I'm 100% convinced that around here we love Jesus. I have no doubt about that. We express our love for God in a variety of ways. I think it comes out in our, in our giving. Just look at, look at the back of the bulletin where it, where it shows the giving report. That doesn't just happen. That happens when people's lives are touched by Jesus. Who else could convince you to give 10% of your income to the local church? I I couldn't do that. I couldn't convince you of that. But your life has been touched by Jesus Christ. And that's an expression of your love for Him. Our praise and worship, our commitment to the local church, it all it all shows how much we love Jesus, but loving our neighbor is every bit as important. 1 John 4:20 says if a man says I love God but he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? It's like me, it's like someone saying to me. It's like someone coming up to me and saying, "You know, Tom, I really like you, but I can't stand your kid. You you say that to me. Just know there's going to be a problem. If we say we love God, we hate the people he loved enough to create, We hate the people that he loved enough to to breathe into their nostrils the breath of life. We hate the people that he loved enough to send his only begotten son into the world to die for their sin. Listen, there's a conflict there. And just know, there's going to be a problem. We love God. We, We do. But I believe God has called us to be better at loving our neighbor. We've, we've got the vertical connection. I think we need work on the horizontal part. In order to neighbor effectively, we must be set apart from the world. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you're a chosen generation. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. The Bible says you're a peculiar people. Craig and Brent, I'm telling you, this is a peculiar people. These guys are different. These guys are set apart. It says that you should show forth the praises. Why are we set apart? How can you tell that you're set apart? It says in that verse, because you show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are a peculiar people. We're set apart. And we have to live distinct lives. We have to see ourselves as called out and different. We are called to be a peculiar people. And the difference in us is what we have to offer the world. Five quick things, another list. How Christians should be different. Number one, we must be forgiving. Don't hold a grudge. If you want to be set apart in your neighborhood, you can't. Hold a grudge. And I know there's neighbors with dogs doing their thing in your lawn and the kids and the garbage blowing over. There's lots of reasons to be mad at your neighbor. You cannot hold a grudge and impact your neighbor. Number two, we must be loving. And love is a verb. Neighbor can be a verb. Number three, we must genuinely care. Compassion goes a long way. Number four, we must be encouraging. Listen, the world is often dark. Encourage your neighbor. Breathe life into your neighbor. Number five, we must be optimistic. Who has more to feel good about than we do, right? If we really believe what we say we believe, then who has more to feel good about than we do? In spite of the circumstances of life, in spite of your personal circumstances, who has more to feel good about than we do? Jesus has come died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, ascended into heaven. He's gone to prepare a place for me. Who has more to feel good about than I do? We should be optimistic. We should be peddlers of hope. The world feels hopeless to people. We have to be peddlers of hope. We have to deal hope. We have to sell hope. We have to offer hope. We have to create hope. Hope, let's peddle hope. That's how we neighbor. We must be forgiving. We must be loving. We must genuinely care. We must be encouraging. We must be optimistic because neighboring matters. You're probably here because someone invited you. My hunch is it wasn't a stranger off the street It was someone you knew and someone you trusted. It was someone you knew and someone you trusted, a family member perhaps, or maybe a neighbor. But you can't just fast forward to the place where you're known and trusted. You have to incrementally move toward the place of trust. That starts with neighboring. And you can't lead with the gospel. You have to meet them at their point of need. You don't knock on their door, stand there with your Bible, read them a scripture, and preach them a sermon. You start by living the gospel. St. Francis of Assisi says, Preach the gospel every day, and when necessary, use words. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And maybe down the line, after they know you, after they trust you, after they see how you do life, How you do it different from the people that they work with. How you do it different from the people that they hang out with in the social setting. Maybe they will ask you about your faith. Maybe they'll ask you about your church. Maybe they'll ask you about what it is that makes you tick. And be ready for that day. And in the meantime, just love your neighbor. Just love God and love your neighbor. Now let me wrap this up. So who are the people in your neighborhood? Could you make a map of your neighborhood and go around the block t- talking about who lives in each house? Do you know their names? Do you know where they work or where they're retired from? Could you name the kids and could you list their ages? Do you know their, their hurts? Do you know their hopes? Do you know their dreams? If there was a crisis, would they see you as a place to turn? Now, maybe you don't do too well on those questions right now. That's one thing. The question is, what are you going to do about it? In Matthew 22, a lawyer tried to trip Jesus up. He, He wanted to see where the priorities of Jesus were. So in verse 35, Matthew 22, it says, the lawyer asked him a question, tempting him. It's interesting how the Bible can see into the motive of a man. The lawyer asked Jesus a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What would he say? Thou shalt not steal? Thou shalt not commit adultery? Jesus says in verse 37, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments, again, back in the Jewish culture, on these two commandments, loving God, loving your neighbor, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Think of the statement that was to these legal experts. Everything hinges, Jesus said. Think about this. Everything hinges on loving God and loving your neighbor. Everything hinges on that. Loving God and loving your neighbor. There's no commandment greater than these All of the law and the prophets are encompassed in loving God and loving your neighbor. Do these two things well, and you will rock the world for Jesus. Love God with all of your heart. Love God with all of your soul. Love God with all of your mind. Love God with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do those two things, and you will rock the world. For Jesus, it starts this summer. Would you bow your heads with me as I close? So, again, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and would you do me a favor? Would you visualize your neighborhood? Would you picture your neighborhood? Picture the people that live by you. Whether you're in an apartment building, whether you're out in the country, and you've got six blocks between your neighbors, picture the people that live by you. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Are they lost? Are they hopeless, desperate, lonely, hurt, frustrated, empty? Are they searching? And how about you? Maybe you're here today. You fall into some of those categories. Well, the good news is that you can leave here knowing Jesus, You can leave here with a relationship with Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, and you're beginning to recognize how much you need Him, because apart from Him, we can never be forgiven of our sins. And I know sometimes we say, well, I'll I'll start being good. I'll be good. The problem is it's too late. If you stood before a judge having stolen a car and you said to the judge, I won't do it anymore, I'll be good, he'd say, well, that's great. The problem is you're guilty. And the righteousness of the law must be satisfied. And that's where you and I stand. If you're anything like me, if I go down the list of Ten Commandments, I fall short. The reality is, If you want to peel back the layers, I'm 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments. The Bible says if you've been angry without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. The Bible says if you've you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. I stand before you 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments. If I stand in my own righteousness, I'll be found guilty before God. Now the good news is the gospel. Jesus came into this world. Born of a virgin. That means he didn't have a sinful nature. He led a sinless life. That qualified him to become the sacrifice for my sins. If you were in a courtroom, and the judge determined that you owed a $100,000 fine, And if that wasn't paid, you'd go to jail. Maybe somebody could say, I'll pay his fine. But if that guy doesn't have $100,000, then he doesn't qualify to pay your penalty. Jesus led a perfect life. He was sinless. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So in spite of the fact that I'm 0 for 10 on the Ten Commandments, If I will receive from Jesus what he did on my behalf, then I can be made righteous. To as many as receive him, the Bible says, he gives the power to become a child of God. Maybe you're like me today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I acknowledge my sin today. The Bible says, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Lord, that's me. And so I receive by faith the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. I confess my sin to you. Acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Lord, I pray that that you would change my heart. You would change my life from the inside out that I would become the man of God that you've called me to be, that I would stop living for the world, begin living for you. I surrender it all to you. I give it to you this morning. Have your way in me. And then, Lord, help us to share that good news with others. Help us to be the neighbor that you've called us to be. You made it very simple for us. We're to love you, and we're to love our neighbor. Lord, I pray you'd help us today to not just talk about it, but to begin to do it. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.